Section 17 of The Red Lamp by Murray Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Conclusion, Chapter 1. The journal takes us up to the evening of September 10th, 1922. It was to the fourth and last tragedy of that summer, which filled the next day's papers, that Little Pettingill referred in the conversation recorded in the introduction of this journal. It was with this tragedy that, as Pettingill said aggrievedly, the story quit on them. And quit it did. We felt then that the best thing to do, under the circumstances, was to let it rest. Once more, de mortui nil nisi bonum. There was nothing to be gained by giving the story to the public, and much to be lost. At that time, it is to be remembered, a wave of spiritualism, or rather spiritism, was spreading over the country. It was still filled, too, with post-war psychopaths. The very nature of the experiment which had been tried was of the sort to seize on the neurotic imagination and set it aflame. It was not considered advisable to allow it publicity. Now, of course, things are different. The search goes on, and perhaps some day, not by this method, but by some legitimate and scientific one, survival may be proved. I do not know. I do not greatly care. After all, I am a Christian, and my faith is built on a life after death. But I accept that. I do not require proof of it. Picture us, then, that evening of September 10th, when the journal ends, waiting for we knew not what, Jane picking up her tapestry and putting it down again, Edith powdering her nose with hands that shook in spite of her best efforts, Halliday at the railroad station with the car to meet Cameron, and off in the woodland, where the red lamp of the lighthouse flashed its danger signal every ten seconds from the end of Robinson's Point, Greeno and a half-dozen officers. Picture us, too, when we had all gathered. Cameron, with his hand still bandaged, presented to the dramatis personae of the play, and eyeing each one in turn shrewdly. Mrs. Livingston garrulous and uneasy, and Livingston a sort of waxy white, and with a nervous trembling I had never observed before. Of us all, only Halliday seemed natural. And Hayward, natural because he was never at ease. What Cameron made of it I do not know. Very probably he saw in us only a group of sensation-seekers, excited by some small contact with the world beyond our knowledge, and if he felt surprise at all, it was that I had joined the ranks. He himself did not appear to take the matter seriously, he made it plain that he had come in this manner at my request, that his own methods would be entirely different. When Edith, I think it was, asked him if he made any preparation for such affairs, he laughed and shook his head. Except that I sometimes take a cup of coffee to keep me awake, he said. On the way up the drive I walked with Livingston. Why, I hardly know, except that he seemed to drift toward me. He never spoke but once, and it seemed to me that he was surveying the shrubbery and trees like a man who suspected a trap. Once, he was on my left, I was aware that he had put his hand to his hip pocket, and I was so startled that I stumbled and almost fell. I knew, as confidently as I have ever known anything, that he had a revolver there. Careful, man, he said. Those were his only words during our slow progress, toward the main house, and so tense were his nerves that they sounded like a curse. Cameron and Edith were leading, and I could hear her talking, carrying on valiantly, although, as it turned out, she knew better than any of us except Halliday, the terrible possibilities ahead. Hayward walked alone and behind us, his rubber-soled shoes making no sound on the drive. It made me uneasy somehow, that silent progress of his. It was stealthy and disconcerting. And I think Livingston felt it so, too, for he stopped once and turned around. Yet at the time, as between the two men, my suspicion that evening certainly pointed to Livingston. Not to go into the cruelty of my ignorance a cruelty which I now understand, but then bitterly resented. I had had both men under close observation during the time we waited for Cameron, and it had seemed to me that Livingston was the more uneasy of the two. 
Another thing which I regarded as highly significant was his asking for water just before we left the lodge, and holding the glass with a trembling hand. And, as it happens, it was that very glass of water which crystallized my suspicions. The glass and the hand which held it. For the hand was a small and wide one, with a short thumb and a bent finger. From that time on, my mind was focused on Livingston. It milled about, seeking some explanation. I could see Livingston in the case plainly enough. I could see him pursuing with old Bethel the sinister design to which Gordon had referred, but to which I had no key. I could see him, with his knowledge of the country, using that knowledge in furtherance of that idea which my Uncle Horace had termed menace to society in general. With the swiftness with which thought creates visions, I could even see him hailing poor Maggie Morrison in the storm, and her stopping her truck when she recognized him. But I could not see him in connection with Eugenia Riggs and her bowl of putty. Strange that I did not, that it required Jane's smelling salts for me to find that connection. A small green glass bottle in Edith's room, used as a temporary paperweight on her desk. As I say, my suspicions were of Livingston during that strange walk up the drive, but I had by no means eliminated Hayward. He was there, behind me, walking with a curious stealth, and with an uneasiness that somehow, without words, communicated itself to me. All emotions are waves, I dare say. I caught the contagion of fear from him, desperate, deadly fear. And once in the house, my suspicions of him increased rather than diminished. For one thing, he offered to take Cameron through the house, and on holidays ignoring that, and going off with Cameron himself, was distinctly surly. He remained in the hall at the foot of the stairs, apparently listening to their progress, and gnawing at his fingers. Watching him from the den, I saw him make a move to go up the stairs, but he caught my eye and abandoned the idea. It was then that Jane felt faint, and I went back to the lodge for her smelling salts. The letter, undoubtedly the letter which Halliday had shown to the police, was lying open on Edith's desk, under the green bottle, and as I lifted the salts it blew to the floor. I glanced at it as I picked it up. End of section 17